Prepare to take your original music to the next level with expert services in audio mastering and music mixing from Midnight Mastering. With over 25 years in the industry, you know your music is in the best hands and ears. Let Midnight Mastering take your music from this to this. Whether you need your latest musical masterpiece professionally mixed or mastered, or even both, leave it to Midnight Mastering. For fast turnarounds, affordable rates, and more information, head to MidnightMastering.com. And then she runs off stage and I was like, wow, there she is actually standing right there in front of me and everyone, you know, a couple of the guys in Lewis's band knew her personally and they were kind of like, oh, that was awesome, how'd you go? And her words literally were, she had this look on her face and she's just like, hold me. Hello and welcome to the Keyboard Chronicles, a podcast for keyboard players. I'm your host, David Holloway, and I'm excited as always to be here with you. I'm flying solo again this episode, and I couldn't think of someone to fly better to fly solo with than Mr. Ray Thistlethwaite. For those that are aware of Ray's work, he is an amazing, amazing jazz pianist or organ player is actually not even stating what this guy can do. So Ray can cut across pretty much any genre at, at an international level. He's sideman with a whole range of iconic acts. He's just come off uh, an amazing tour with Joe Satriani. He has his own solo career, plays jazz, does all sorts of funky stuff, um, is really well-renowned across a range of countries. In an Australian context, because Ray is Australian, Ray also happens to be the front man of an amazing Australian outfit of more than 20 years standing, Thirsty Merck. So between all of that and Ray's upbringing in music, he has some fascinating insights on success, imposter syndrome, how he does what he does, and a whole lot more. I think you'll enjoy this one a great deal, and you'll be able to tell that I did as well uh, while we're doing the interview. So I'll see you at the end of the show. Ray, cannot thank you enough. It's Friday evening and we both should be doing something better maybe, but you've taken the time to do this. Can't can't thank you enough. Thanks, Dave. Really good to see you here and big fan of the podcast and it's really cool that you've set something up. There's a lot of guitar stuff, there's a lot of bass stuff, there's a lot of drum stuff. I don't know why. I mean, there's a lot of keyboard stuff if you look online, but there, I, I, I am struggling to find as many keyboard-based stuff and, you know... I know there's a lot of written forums, but this is really, really cool that you've got the, the, the vision and everything. And it's a thrill to have you on. Now, I want to ask, uh, my co-host Paul, unfortunately, is on a holiday, but he did want me to pass on a question. And I think it's a question that a lot of our listeners and viewers, and as I mentioned, we have about 6,000 keyboard players around the world listen to this. And I think it's a very legitimate one, and I don't want you to be offended, but how in hell's name did you manage to make the transition from a nerdy keyboard player to a guitar-wielding frontman in a rock band? What's the secret behind that shit? Um, well, the, I mean, the thing, yeah, you know, and most people who know me from either my family or my high school friends or university sort of uh, crew, I guess, you know, when I was that sort of age and that sort of stage... They all know that I was a, a keyboard player first. You know, my mum taught me piano before she, you know, before I sort of started doing any other type of music, which was fantastic. The thing was, though, I always had a dad who was playing gigs on the weekends and he was playing guitar 
and bass in bands. So, you know, there were sort of like two sides to the musicality of my, you know, immediate family, really, there. There was a guy there that was playing gigs on the weekends more around the kind of, you know, what he called scratch bands, putting bands together from scratch, playing, you know, stuff from the 60s, 70s, some bit of 80s, but mainly it was sort of 50s, 60s and 70s. And that was all about the love of just gigging and going out and doing that. Whereas my mum was more into being an artist, being a, a uh, you know, into theory, into sort of the technicalities of how to be strict about learning some of those sort of drills and protocols and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, I, I'm very, very blessed to have had um, supportive parents musically. Um, but I guess, you know, being at an age when you're in your mid-teens and your late teens, you know, you're sort of getting to that age where instead of wanting to play a certain way, you still want to play, you know, fast and you want to play all the stuff and learn lots of technique and do all that sort of stuff, I guess. But you also have things like hormones kicking in. You've, you're, you're hanging out with your mates. You're kind of, you know, I was a suburban uh, Sydney kid. So really I was just riding my bike around, running around in the scrub, in the bush, you know, doing like lots of different fun things on the weekends and writing songs about, you know, the cute girl on the bus that I was catching the bus home from school and started writing these sort of high school lyrics and that sort of got me into more of a storytelling thing and that was a bit more related to my dad's kind of pop music love from those kind of 60s and 70s bands and I guess that you know that brought out another element of my personality and then combining that with some musical knowledge that my mum had given me it was a sort of that's how I started telling stories in songwriting I guess and you know then then there's the portability of the guitar because as you know, even the best keyboards, it's a bit of furniture that's in front of you there. You're sort of chained to it, whereas guitarists, they can go and sit on the beach, sit under a tree in a field and get out of their car and sit you know, there and take it everywhere. And they've got their actual instrument. You know, I was always bummed out that we had to use a virtual version of our thing or you know, a synthesised kind of action or whatever we're doing. So there was something really cool about being able to bring the actual instrument that you were going to gig on stage, and that's very, very simple for something that's the weight yeah. and size of a guitar. Um, you know, that, that, that said, keyboards have come leaps and bounds in terms of, you know, of uh, portability and feel and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, of course, software has enabled the sounds to be incredible with uh, keyboard stuff. But that's how I really got into it. It was a sort of combination of all those elements. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was always wanting to do keyboard, you know, as well in, in any project that I play guitar in, really. Yeah. No, great answer. You've covered both sides of the boundary there. Great stuff. Um, so we won't talk too much about your early days, Ray, because I know that's well well documented. And you mentioned your mum and dad and, and their influence. So say late high school, what was your first, if not serious, musical project where you started to realise, I'm, I'm really getting into this? That's a good question. I think what it was was there were some guys that... So, yeah, there was a, a guy called Ed, and he was just living um, on the, you know, in the suburbs of Sydney as well. But he was at my school, and he was about five years older than me, and he was a well-known sort of drummer in the school band and doing the kind of big band jazz stuff. He was going to do you know, the, the highest type of elective music for the end of his school. And we were all fans of him, all the younger students were fans of him uh and he was also a great piano player and he was going for basically the cross-section of those two worlds studying vibraphone or marimba at the sydney conservatorium that's sort of what he wanted to do i could sort of tell he wanted to go and take his 
uh, studies further. And um, I'd done piano exams at the Sydney Conservatorium as a, as a youngster, so I sort of knew about where it was, what it looked like, and you know the, the institution and how sort of reputable it was. And um, sure enough, he got in there and, and had a bunch of friends that were playing. And then when I got to about year 10 at school, he was obviously not at the school anymore, he was at, at, at university, but he basically had a band that he was playing in and he said, oh, look, the rhythm section of this band is just... It's kind of not going the way we thought, you know. A lot of the grooves are slowing down and it's a weird thing, I don't know. Like, we're doing some gigs around town, but we've just been thinking of just changing the lineup a little bit, getting a guitarist who's also studying at the conservatorium. And so he pulled him in and then said, would you like to do something on keys? And, and we had a jam with a bass player, but, who, funnily enough, is Phil, who's in Thirsty Merc. But he uh, was busy with James Morrison already at that stage and started to do more jazz stuff with James and a bit, you know, a bit time poor I had all the time in the world so I stayed in the band Phil ended up going off and doing that that stuff with James and then the singer of the band Richie who I'm still mates with today said uh look we're not going to get a bass player we reckon you can split the bass onto the left part of the keyboard and you're going to have to do it yourself save a man you know we've only got specific number of seats in the vehicle all that practicality stuff and I was like what but I was a fan of you know bass playing through my dad and also I'd listen to Oscar Peterson walk those bass lines you know and I was always a huge fan of what he was doing with that left-handed keyboard playing and I I thought well it's a challenge and you know it had a slap bass sound so I dialed that up and then then we started just playing around so that was my first project I mean that was the first time we started playing in I guess licensed venues that sold alcohol yeah. I was too young to you know drink the alcohol but that's where I got a fake ID. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the rest is history. <laughs> That's gold. And, and yeah. I mean, I know you mentioned the conservatorium there, Ray, you are, and we might talk about that in a sec. Um, but I assume that was the launching pad. I know um, you, very early in your career, you sort of had a potential record deal there with a, with a record label, moved to the US as a relatively young, young bloke. What was the experience for you? Uh, undergoing that and um, what was your learning experience because I know sadly due to a restructure at the record company that fell through what was the learning experience you took from that early move and just the the music business more broadly well see before that it's a yeah that's a, a great sort of part of the development because before that I really didn't I, I, I mean I, I, I guess I must have been aware that there was a music industry and a business but I really hadn't dipped my toe into any of that. I didn't know how it looked, felt, and what the different names of things were called. I didn't know about record labels. I didn't know about managers. I didn't know about agents. You know, all I know, my dad had said like, oh, agents, oh, bloody hell, you know, and he was always sort of speaking in that sort of way about them because they were just guys booking, you know, the the, uh, the RSL clubs, yeah, and agents, clubs around yeah. Western Sydney and, you know, probably down your way and, you know, up around Newcastle and that sort of stuff. So, but, you know, that's what everyone says when they're trying to get hustle gigs starting out, you know. So um, I didn't know how that all tied together. And then being thrown in... So I had done one year at the Conservatorium. And after that, I, I really wish I'd kind of gone back in a lot of ways, but I did get this great opportunity to go and fly over to the States 
and meet all those people, you know, record label people from a company which was uh, a part of the Sony subsidiary. And then, yeah, you know, there were product managers who were trying to market records and there were the A&R guy. I was like, ooh, the A&R guy, this, what's this? Aeroplanes and restaurants, this is awesome. So then learn about that. And then, of course, a couple of years later, they decided to not put the record out. Everything kind of goes belly up. And I think, look, if I'd been at this age and stage, I would have probably thought, oh, God, I don't want to do that again, you know. But being only, I guess, about 20 when things started falling apart, I was like, well, I've got all the energy and then some that I've ever had. I still know that this is not going to stop me playing, you know, in bands. It's not going to stop me playing in, you know, playing keyboard. I mean, it was so much a part of me that had nothing to do with going out and trying to sort of get a commercial project together that I knew I'd just do it musically anyway. Um, and I was a big fan of my older brother who did the same thing with like, you know, um, visual arts. So he was doing drawing and all sorts of colouring things in on computers and all this surrealist stuff and funny cartoons and everything. So I sort of knew that it's, it's all about just enjoying it. Um, and I'd already had a good lineage of that in my, you know, playing, I guess. So that was going to happen one way or, the, or another. But I do remember thinking, this is going to be a good lesson for me. You know, you've got to learn that some things just don't work out. And like that Tumba Rumba song, I get knocked down, but I get up again. You're never going to keep me down. You know, I just like, you know. And then I drank a whiskey drink and a cider drink. And uh, yeah. I love, I love that you call it. It's about the better time since then. I'm not sure. <laughs> I love that you call it Tumbrum because I won't bore our listeners, but I grew up about half an hour away from Tumbrum, so I find that funny. Or is it Chumbawamba? Oh, no, no, God. Yeah, yeah. it was Chumbawamba. Yeah. wrong. Mount Kira. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think that's a great perspective, Ray. I think that, and it shows probably some early maturity in regards to the the music biz. Now, I want to I want to provide some context to our listeners and viewers. As I've mentioned, a, a majority, or probably nearly all, keyboard players. Um, Ray, I know you get this. In Australia, you are known as the front guy for Thirsty Merc. I'm guessing overseas you definitely have a fan base, but it would be slightly less than you know how well you're known in Australia. Whereas overseas, you're the, the brilliant jazz and genre-crossing you know, keyboard player who, you know, massive sideman with some big acts, but also your own incredible solo work. It's, it's an interesting thing that really was set up from the get-go. You went to America and you, you're very much used to playing these two roles. Do you think that's actually sort of benefited your career in a lot of ways? Um, well, look, firstly, thank you for the nice, the kind words. Um, yeah, it's it's been one of those things that's always been there in my self and my mind and, you know, my heart as a musician, I guess. But um, there's certain projects like Thirsty Merc, which had a, a breakthrough album, you know. We had a couple of songs come out and, mm. of course, you're there very lucky to be, be having a, a record label promote your stuff. You're out there doing everything you can. You're trying to say yes to everything. You're trying to get on as many uh, gigs and bills as you can. So, you know, if something starts getting that momentum, you've got to run with it. And that's what we were all thinking with the guys. You know, back in the day, we were thinking, well, you know, this is very hard to do. Um, we're very, very fortunate to be in this position. So we'll, we'll just keep going and see where we, we can take this. You know, at that point, we were just like, we just want to play a couple of gigs at some 200, 300 seaters and sell out a couple of all ages shows and that'd be that. But, you know, when we got to the point where we were playing a couple of theatres and 
some slightly bigger uh, venues and getting, you know, playing at, at, at awards ceremonies like the Arias and stuff like that. We were kind of like, okay, well, now this is a, a nice platform for us to at least... There's one thing getting there, but then it's like, how do you stay there? And that's one of those things. But I think in my head, um, yeah, there was always that love for this mixture of styles. And again, I go back to the fact that, you know, you, you wouldn't choose between your mum or your dad. And they were into such different musical styles, but they were both so sort of uh, brilliantly inspiring to me. So I guess it was a bit of a way of kind of, um, yeah, keeping that communication and love that they'd given me sort of musically just to say, hey, look, you know, my dad would say funny things like, look, drop everything to do the gig, schoolwork, do the gig, you know, girls, do the gig, you know, like all this stuff. And he was just all about that love and joy of just the actual performance stuff. But then mum was really amazing. She was more about, you know, Ray, I believe you've got a gift and, you know, you really, you know, I, I believe you've got something here. And, you know, I was wanting to work hard in that way. And I think that was always there when I was at home playing after the Thirsty Merc gig, you know, after you've done a, a tour or whatever with the guys, I'd always be on the, you know, the C. Beckstein upright at home that I'd bought, you know, and I was like, now I've got my own piano and I had an old Kawhi that I used to play as well that I bought from a school friend. So I'd be sort of trying to shed on those things. And I was listening to, you know, I was listening to Brad Mildow. I was listening to a lot of wow. Keith Jarrett. I was listening to a lot of Chick Corea. I mean, this all started in my teens. Jan Hammer. Um, I guess, oh, then I went back a bit, you know, went more into Bill Evans, the uh, Winton Kelly. Um, I was a huge fan of Carol King as a songwriter, who the way she did that, being able to sing in right-hand chords, but this bass note thing. Um, and, and not just instruments of keyboard design, you know. I was into all sorts of other instrumentalists from Freddie Hubbard to um, Alan Holdsworth, um, I guess Scott Kinsey and those guys playing in Tribal Tech, mm-hmm. you know, all the Dave Weckl stuff. Um, even some people I've ended up working with and meeting now, you know, I was listening to like Lewis Cole and yeah. um, even Oz Noy, you know, the guitarist. So, yeah, I was sort of always into all these different other stuff. Um, so, yeah, it's been interesting to sort of then go overseas and, you know, you don't have as much of a profile overseas with that particular band because things, you know, you've got a, a local record deal where they're promoting this. Yeah, I was listening to all these other, other things and then I guess when you get over to another place, um, yeah, you go from this, you know, guy in a band who can charge X amount of dollars for a gig to a dude playing at a place that's, mate, can I get a gig? And they're like, get in line. You get over there, you know, they say, well, it's three sets, it's 60 bucks US and a punch in the face, you know, you might get a couple of free drinks, but that's all you're getting. And, uh, you know, it was a very humbling thing. But then through those sort of things, I was able to have that fire in my belly to sort of, well, I've got to turn this into something, I've, you know, and then you meet people like Lewis Cole, you meet mm. other people and you end up realising that there's these sides to you, you know, I remember when Lewis said to me, mate, you've got to be shredding more on keyboards, you know, and I was like, well, I've always done that, I guess, but he was like, no, 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 but we, you know, we need the world to hear this, and I was like, oh, I guess, you know, I was, I was doing that sort of Australian humility thing that we do, where you sort of play it all down the whole time, and, um, 
and but he was like, no, nah, no, nah, you go crazy, you know. And I sort of learnt that as well on the Joe Satriani uh, tour that I've just completed in in the US and Europe. You know, it's a different genre, you know. The I guess the guitarist shredding thing, but it's really you just it's all hands on deck and just give them everything, you know. Just play a lot of notes. It's okay. There are audiences that dig that, you know. So, you know, and I'm like, well, that's one way to skin the cat. And it's good to learn about these different disciplines because it just rounds me out a little more to understand how different things are done, that there's no right or wrong in terms of musical style, genre. It's just if it sounds good, it is good. And that is such a subjective thing. You know, if you go to some part of Europe, there's a different audience where there's a scene where they're listening to a slightly different extrapolation. And then, of course, those audiences... They know about pub rock in Australia. They know about ACDC. They know, you know, about the feel and groove of the way that, you know, the Cosmic Psychos and the Angels and ACDC and, you know, um, Phil Rudd, you know, that hi-hat feel that those guys have. Like, everyone's fans of all that stuff. But it's been nice to stretch out because each project sort of gives me different skill sets and understandings and it just helps me be more open-minded, I guess. And, you know, everybody's... Just trying to communicate with music, and that's really yeah. all it is. No, great point. And so just mentioning Lewis Cole, was that one of your first key contacts when you did start going over and, and if not starting from the beginning, just, you know, doing that, that hard slog? Because I do want to talk about Noah, but I'm interested, what what was that initial hard hard slog like for you beyond being broke as far as, yeah, how, how did you build that up over time? Well, Lewis is definitely a big part of... Uh, you know, some musical inspiration and some touring that came out of that as well. And, and he's still going. Um, at the time we're doing this interview, I'm just about to go to uh, play Fuji Rock with him uh, cool. in his big band. We're doing a couple of gigs in uh, Korea as well. Um, but I've got to mention a few other people. Aaron yeah. Sterling is a drummer who uh, at the time was just living in LA. He, his parents were, I think his mum was a session singer and his dad was a music producer doing a whole bunch of country stuff christian stuff you know the stuff that goes on in nashville they were from nashville but he'd moved out and was doing a whole lot of studio stuff in los angeles and i was in a uh, a studio session one day and i was just sitting in the main uh live room and he was sort of sitting on the drums and came in because he was getting ready for for tracking another song and he heard me playing and we started jamming a bit and he was like, oh, right, you're into, like, the throwback keyboard thing. And I was like, yeah, and you're into that, like, slinky, frisky kind of, like, cool, like, Beatles-y meets kind of, I don't know what that is, but it's a great feel. It's kind of Americana meets kind of. And then we just, I realised he had a really quirky, out-there sense of humour. So we just connected on that level. And then it was actually recording songs like San Francisco Street with him and, and my friend Christian on bass and doing these sort of EPs at, in, in, in Aaron's garage, which started also a recording thing that ended up being a thing, which that was, a, that was important because I think, you know, Aaron was one of those guys that didn't have to go out on tour at all. He was, and that proved to me, wait, there's a thing here in LA where there's guys that don't travel, they just yeah. play. And I know that's more of that Nashville headspace. And we don't have so much of that in Australia being, you know, a smaller population. Everyone's a bit more jack of all trades. And by the way, that also makes us rounded, amazing musicians mm. in a lot of ways. But, you know, Aaron was one of those guys that was just that 
impeccable vibe and groove and just knew how to get a recorded sound so world class you know it was better than anything I'd ever heard and so striking up that friendship was important and then getting some recordings out of it uh, um, was really really cool you know just going in there and seeing what came out you know um, and then then meeting Lewis was a random thing I'd all the Australian jazz students I guess were already into it but all the all the other you know, older jazz musicians were all into this crossover that they were doing, this sort of Nintendo two-step Janet Jackson meets computer game meets crazy orchestral cinematic um, arranging meets double-time drum and bass two-step music, which is sort of almost EDM-inspired, but with, a you know... At that stage, it wasn't as much a live band. It was almost like a dubstep project. But we all knew about it because, you know, we... It, that sort of music is so niche that it it kind of just it spreads really quickly through yeah. the art music circles, I guess. So at the time, I heard Lewis was playing a gig down at a place. Um, I think it was called Spaceland, which was in Silver Lake in Los Angeles. I just went in and I thought, oh, this guy's such a monster of a drummer. He's going to be, you know, he's going to have a. I don't know, he's just going to have a personality that I'm going to have to be a bit kind of, what's he going to be like? I'm going to have to be really nice. And, you know, I just went up and said hi to him. And he was this tall, kind of lanky, skinny, like goofy, hilarious genius dude who just had this totally goofy sense of humour. Like almost Beavis and Butthead style jokes kind of thing going on. I was like, wait a minute, this guy's just another level on all levels. Like he's just a unique soul. And he's writing music that's that groovy and sounds that progressive. I, I just, I was like, of course he's going to be a wild card in every way. And from that moment, I knew that I, I was a huge fan of him already. And then when we started jamming, you know, he was very kind. He said, you know, we've been separated at birth. And I said, well, we've got to do some gigs together. And then we ended up working together. And, and it was a random thing to do, you know, these house um sort of house recording things yeah. he never really knew where that was going i remember him ringing me up saying look you know it's probably going to fall flat on its face i've, I've made the videos the mix is, is what it is and i was like no man it's awesome you know it's going to go great i'm sure people will dig it anyway but we didn't know that that was going to be a defining moment for that project yeah. and look i was just i was you know lucky to be in the right place at the right time um but it was a bit of divergent evolution you know like when you meet someone like Aaron Sterling, you meet someone like Lewis Cole, we've all listened to a lot of the same stuff. So this is where that sort of, you, f you find each other, you know, and, and you learn from each other. So that was, that, was, that was a cool thing. And at that stage, I, you know, I wouldn't say that I was really able to be self-sufficient financially in Los Angeles, but I was trying to be, you know, come back and do some Thirsty Merck stuff, go there for a while, you know, I remember I was like downloading budgeting apps to kind of work out, oh my God, I'm hemorrhaging cash over here. I don't know how I'm going to make this work. But for some reason, there was part of me which was like, I need to go on this journey and I just need to see what comes out of this because I think it's just going to be musically, I don't know, it's just going to sort of keep me enthused about where music's going for me. And, 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 and it sort of has continued to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and then sh sure enough, when someone like uh, Joe Satriani called, um, and you know, gigs, 
doing some demos with the Nord guys and the Noah stuff. That all sort of ended up being written in an article which Joe read himself and they'd showcased a couple of YouTube videos. And it, yeah, it's a very small world, as you know. Everyone sort of knows, knows everyone and met some of the guys from Spectrasonics and um, was a huge fan of some of the software they were doing. So, you know, all those sort of little familial things that came out of some of those let's just see where this hang goes, let's see where this gig goes, let's see where this tour goes. It's been, yeah, one day something will happen and you'll end up working out, you know, there'll be a paid gig here and then there'll be a cool project here and then there'll be a friendship here and then you'll come up with a song idea here and then every project will inspire the others and that's kind of, that, that's been sort of the MO but you got to have a plan but not have enough of a plan but it's kind of like creating your own luck a bit, I guess, but just being just being into it and enjoying what you're doing. Yeah, and I, yeah, look, it's, there's no doubt you've created your own momentum, and, and probably it's a little bit of a sidestep. It relates to Aaron Sterling because I know he played on this track, but I'm going to quote one of your own lyrics back at you, which is, "I suffer from the feeling that I'm quite crap." Coming <laughs> from that absolutely superb song, "Man Oh Man," we'll be linking it in our show notes. I know. It's only a tiny drop in the bucket for you, Ray, of what you do creatively. But I'd argue that's one of the most inspirational in a non-cheesy, effective way of the last 20 years. I just I can't tell you how many times I've played that song. It's absolutely superb. But yeah. how have you overcome those natural insecurities that we all have? Like, it's obvious from the get-go, you very positive, proactive approach. How, have you, how do you go when you hit those harder times? That's a, yeah, that's a, I think, you know, let, let's use a, a guy who apparently should have it all. You know, I'm going to say Brad Pitt as an actor. Yes. Right? He's got the looks. He is a great actor. He's had the lineage. He can't seem to put a foot wrong. Um, he doesn't choose all the roles just to be the money roles, but then he's done all of those, but then he's kind of, he can be weird and arty when he wants and he's sort of not, one thing only but then he can be the heartthrob guy but then he then he can be complete psychopath if he needs to be you know he's sort of the actor's actor in a lot of ways but he's also a huge successful celebrity but i can only imagine that he is a very creative guy that has days where he feels i suck you know i just i'm not nailing it i need to just um and and you know if you look at the uh, the movie uh, it's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, it's a it's a Quentin Tarantino film, and I, I saw a, an interview with Quentin Tarantino saying that that may well be his favourite film. It's a great movie. When I look at the two, you know, you've got Brad Pitt in that movie, who's the stunt double, but then you've got the actual actor who's playing the real life actor, and that's Leonardo DiCaprio. But there's those moments where he's, you know, obviously had a few too many drinks because he's using that as a crutch to get through his whole thing. But the way that he channels that self-hatred is so relatable as an, as an artist in any way. And I'm like, the fact that that guy is so good at doing that scene, he's not, it's not his first time pretending to hate himself. He's Leonardo DiCaprio, who is another guy who should have it all does kind of have it all but he's that's real you can tell that he's acting that because he's 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 able to damn well channel some real stuff you know what i mean and i think it doesn't matter what level you get to whether the success is marked by 
you know, your numbers and your, you know, how well you're doing on a poll or something within yourself about achievement. But you're going to have those days. And to be honest, I don't have any cheat sheet on it. I think it's one of those things that I guess, and you know, another, another, this is a musical example. I was lucky enough to play with Lewis Cole at a festival in somewhere in, in fact, it was the North Sea Jazz Festival, which is oh, a wow. huge festival in the Netherlands. It's one of the biggest festivals in Northern Europe. And there's an artist called Leanne Le Harvis. I don't know if you've heard of her. No. She's, she's, a, she's a vocalist and a guitarist, and the singing is impeccable, and she's got the most beautiful sounding voice. She plays flawless guitar. She's the perfect fit for a jazz festival because she's super accessible and marketable, but she really is just the real deal. And I remember her just coming off stage and I was in the next band room along with Lewis and we were kind of warming up because I think we had to go on after her or we might have already just played or whatever. No, I think we might have already just played. And, you know, it was just all the sound of backing vocalists and people kind of warming up for the whole afternoon. And I was aware that she was over there and then she runs off stage and she'd sounded unbelievable. I was like, the girl sounds like an angel. And then she runs off stage and I was like, wow, there she is actually standing right there in front of me. And everyone, you know, a couple of the guys in Lewis's band knew her personally. And they were kind of like, oh, that was awesome. How'd you go? And her words literally were, she had this look on her face and she's just like, hold me. You know, <laughs> she like ran up to one of the guys. She's just like, I think I stuffed it up. Like, you know, like, and I was just like, that's just, it's just human nature, yeah. you know, to just have that self-judgment. And I don't know, I, I have those moments and I just go, oh my gosh, I guess if Leanne Le Harvis is feeling that, <laughs> then it's okay. And, you know, really that's what I was writing about with the song yeah. No Man, you know, it's, you know, I don't know. I, I vacillate between the two worlds, you know, being confident. And I think that I can say, look, here's where my confidence comes from and the only confidence it, it's in music because I, you know, I was never good at sport. I was never that great at math or any of that kind of stuff. I missed too much geography to even know where things were on the map. I was basically playing music. I had that in the family. And I guess I've got, I was like, I've got one strong suit and I know it's music and I want to hone in on that. I, I don't want to just make it just piano. I want to do a whole bunch of stuff within my world of music because it's such a beautiful world. Um, and I want to keep exploring with that. But I know that I can bring it in various situations. You know, if someone says, like, sight-read this orchestral thing for the next 90 minutes, I'm gone. Can't do it. But, you know, why am I saying yes to that gig? You know, but I know enough about myself and I've been doing it that long that I can, I can definitely bring it on certain, in certain stages on certain stages. Um, but pretty much in a lot of other facets of my life, I'm a complete... I just have nothing together at all, you know what I mean? I just, and that's kind of why I feel that it's like there's that duality that goes on with yeah. a lot of artists. And I think it's also to do with the extremes of having to, to be really into this and get a career going. You almost have to be overtly obsessed with one thing and really work so hard at it, even if you really are good, to get something going on. And... If you're doing that, you're also not doing everything else. That's right. 
So, you know, I can always be a, a better, more rounded human as a human, but there's so much to do and there's not enough time so it's like you know i don't know does that answer yeah it does no i think that's a a brilliant perspective and just one last question about that song i know on the youtube video i can't imagine you have the time to be reading comments but there are so many people that love to see that on streaming services i assume there's a barrier there because of the wonderful people you've got playing on it how you actually get it up on a streaming service oh i think they'd be fine with it um i think it was not to do with that it was because of complete missing the ball negligence <laughs> i work with a gentleman over in uh in la and i do remember mentioning it but then we got busy with other stuff yeah. and then now it's been months and i haven't done it but i really have to do it i have yeah. to yeah I, I think i think you know it, you might only earn four dollars 99 for your two million streams but i think it's still <laughs> worth it it's true <laughs> no thank you and so you just you you mentioned about the taking on the orchestral gig. I mean, you've taken on a huge amount of gigs and, and obviously more recently been a sideman. You mentioned Joe Satriani. Am I delusional or did you just do a Steve Vai tour as well? No, I haven't done anything. No, with... I don't know why I was thinking that. So, yeah, so Joe Satriani. I mean, what's the experience for you going from, you know, Frontman, Thirsty Merc, you know, Jazz and all the other really cool projects? What's it been like as a sideman? Anything new you've learnt there or, you know, what what's particularly... You've enjoyed about that? There's been a lot that I've learnt through Joe. Joe's probably, you know, and just hearing from the way that um, the other guys, you know, Kenny Aronoff, drummer, yeah. you know, he's been around a long time playing with John Fogarty and, and Mellon Camp and even played in the Smashing Pumpkins for a while. You've got mm-hmm. Brian Bellow who plays with Guthrie Govan and he has played with Steve Vai and he plays, you know, Death Clock, which is kind of like a, a heavy metal uh, soundtrack to a kind of an adult swim TV series um, and then also played in Dweezil Zappa's band so you've got yeah. a sort of more progressive hard rock metal cinema soundtrack fantasy sort of more of an art project that Joe's kind of set up with the way that and then of course you know all the Hendrix and all the blues stuff that he was so inspired by as well just sort of in there as well um, and just that Americana and American rock, you know, that faster tempo sort of thing, you know, not the not the dirgy ACDC stuff, but the really kind of quick stuff. He's got a lot of those yeah. kind of palm beauty things that he's done too. So, you know, I learned a lot musically by going into that world. It was, as a keyboard player, it was a real sounds world. And I had the challenge of how am I going to slice this? You know, am I going to have to think multiple boards or am I going to go you know, a laptop with software, oh, yeah, then you're turning a laptop on and you, know, you got the USB connections, do I do yeah. that? Do I do the old Nord that I know the language of, but how am I going to get the sounds right? And, you know, how do I pre-program this stuff so by the time I get to the stuff, because there's not just song by song, there's sections per mm. song and how do I want to set list it out and how am I going to change the order of things and is it going to be in order or... It was a real conundrum. That was almost as important, if not as more difficult, than learning the music. Yeah. So that was the challenge. And it was different, you know. Instead of the, I guess, playing more acoustic piano stuff in Thirsty Merc, which is more songwriter-based, mm. um, and the odd Wurlitzer here and there, maybe a lead sound here and there, it was more like, okay, now you're layering stuff up. you got verbs you got delays, you've got 
you're adding pads that really are part of the sound. Okay, now you've got to do this, the flying in a blue dream thing. It's a Lydian kind of sounding, almost like a blues form, um, but a repeated kind of figure the whole way through, and it's really important. It's almost like the kind of mantra of the song. Mm. But it's kind of a guitar sound. How do you recreate that? Is it samples, but then it's got to be chimey and it's got to have these lasting verbs. And, you know, it was a lot of building sounds that way. Um, and I think because it wasn't as much about being a storyteller and a songwriter and a, a vocalist, because I really didn't sing on anything in that tour, um, I thought, okay, the guy I'm thinking about more, and I know that this may not be the same as some of the other um, keyboard players that Joe's had, but I thought, well, Joe played in Deep Purple for six months. Why don't I come a little bit over towards where John Lord might have been? You know, it's still... Then I can do my thing, because I love that electromechanical world. Nord's very suited to that kind of yeah. sound. And that's the staple of the Nord world. But then having that Nord stage there, you can layer things up. I can do it all on one keyboard. I can even split keyboards in various parts and have things going on. You know, there's one song where there's a tubular bells thing going on and I need to double a bass note going on to chime that just at the end of the song. So I don't touch that section of the keyboard for the rest of the song. Then the rest of it is just, um, I guess it's piano sounding stuff yeah and then you're just hitting this and then there's also turning a phaser on and off to emulate maybe what it's a fast rate phaser with a lot of color kind of turned up so on the the guitar sound that i was trying to sort of emulate it was that like wah, 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 you know that kind of like a lot of resonance in the, the filtering going on trying to recreate that so it was more it was more of a, a sound design yeah. Big, as well as driving the groove along, but doubling bass lines. So that was really a fun thing to do, you know, get into that. And how did you pull it off, Ray? So did you end up using the door primarily or you sort of use it as a controller to bring in some other stuff? I just, I thought if I can do it all on dedicated hardware, just with one keyboard with the sounds in it, I'll do it. And, and it did work out that way. Great. Um, so that was with Nord synths and uh, synth sounds or samples where needed? That was yeah. it? Yeah, wow. yeah. And look, the thing about a lot of these keyboards now is they've got ridiculous polyphony, as you know. They've got um, the doubling layer thing. It's almost like the way that Nord set up the stage range, at least, um, is it's basically every module there. On the left, you've got a Hammond organ. In the middle, you've got your piano and electromechanical. Then you've got your synth you got your effects and then you got some master stuff. So it's all sort of set out in that world. Organ, piano, electromechanical, synth. And there's sort of a knob or switch for everything. Bit of menu diving these days because there's so much more to it. But the good thing about the Nord stage range is that right from the start, it's been a double of that. So anything you do with those mixed together, you can have them all on at once, of course, yeah. or all split up at once. But then when you go to the B... Um, slab, you know, you go to the second slab, and now it's a blank canvas. Yeah, you can have one or the other on, or both on, and they're, they're just getting that powerful and having that amount of memory in them now. Yeah, well, I guess right. you no, know, the, the, the Nords don't have nearly as much as a, a rompler, you know, on no. a computer. 
you know, we're talking... I'm downloading a piano library now, literally, as we speak. It's called the 1955 uh, Steinway D. Okay. And I think, look, it's 35 gig of Steinway samples, but then you can add mic positions to it, and I think if you add them all up, it's 210 gig or something of wave files. So, you know, this is how big these sample libraries are getting now. But I thought for Lewis Cole's gig and Noah, I do 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 software-based stuff. Yeah. It's just so, it's horses for courses, isn't it? You know, and you mentioned Spectrasonics before, so we, I mean they've got some amazing stuff. What what particularly floats your boat with their stuff? Well, I mean you can't go past the 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 piano sample of the mm. the Yamaha stuff they've made. the The C seven is fantastic, but it's probably the most complete all keyboards. Yeah you know, sort of suite that's there, you know, that kind of puts it all in one package um, and everything's a good mixture of character versus precision, you know? So, yeah. and look, that's Eric Persing. He knows how yeah. to sample stuff, you know. he's He's been doing it so long and he's he's absolutely brilliant. You know, he used to design sounds for the D50, the Roland yeah, that's D50, right. yeah. like that kind of class of keyboard when they were getting into proper rompler keyboards in the 80s like he was there doing that stuff then and you know one time i i did a little thing of man in the mirror you know and i was like oh i was lucky enough to write a song with glenn ballard who wrote part of that song and then he's like yeah i played keyboards on the recording you know he wrote, wrote to me on like my facebook wow. or like, commented i was like what the this guy's he's just done yeah, everything like, you know, unbelievable and it's sweet sweet as cat as well he's a really cool dude yeah, no, amazing. And and so I know we've got to let you go relatively soon, Ray, so we might jump into some of the, the more standard questions. But um, before I do that, what, what's your plan over the next 12 months? I mean, I'd argue you're one of the busiest Aussie musicians I know. I follow you on Facebook and you're a busy guy. What, what's the next 12 months holding for you? Well, the big thing is the 20-year Thirsty yeah. Merth anniversary tour. We've just, yeah, it's been really cool launching that. Um People might not know this, but we are a self-managed band. We're 100%. Oh, wow. Um, we weren't always this way, but we were, you know, every band's 100% self-managed and 100% independent when they start. But we literally are that again. And to be able to go out there and be playing some really nice, um, you know, some theatres and some incredibly good music spaces, some rock clubs, and adding more and more gigs onto that um, is great. And, you know, just to be able to say i stand on stage with my best mates and and play these songs and and have audiences there that you know have come a lot of them have come back a couple of times if not more and it's just the greatest feeling and 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 i love those guys and you know working with all the people who help put it together on the crew levels and the agent and everything it's just it's amazing you know so um that's going to be really cool and you know even working with the people doing things like everything from the artwork to you know we're having discussions about how to do t-shirts and merchandise and then it's actually been fun cutting together some of the creative little snippets for uh the little advertising things i I actually made the creative videos that we're using to actually advertise the things did the voiceovers and the sound and i thought normally you wouldn't do this you'd outsource it but the one thing i thought is 
they're, they're all audio-based promos. So that needs to be the first thing that needs to be right. That's right. And a lot of people making content in video-based stuff, they might have come from a different angle. So um, I just thought that's one of the reasons that might just make some promos. And even that's been kind of fun in itself. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, just to get that out there. And we hope to really round that out um, through October, November. We've got nine shows that are that are going on uh, already, but then, yeah, and we've just done a Western Australian. Yeah. So that's kind of the next phase for me, you know, just really get that going. And, and I have, I wish I could remember the specifics. It's going back about 15 years, Ray, but you guys have a, there's a certain anecdote that floated around Wollongong where I'm based about you guys playing Dapto Leagues Club, which I'm sure you have. And it was something about you guys in a ride-up, but I, I don't know anything beyond that. I wish I could recall more, but just, just so you know, you're fondly remembered down here. Us and a rider. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what it was. I can't remember whether you were happy or unhappy with a component of the rider. I, I honestly can't remember. I, think I kind of remember some sort of funny thing going on about the rider and Dapto. Yeah, there you go. Good old Dapto no, Leagues. I, remember. I mean, if Dapto Leagues is good enough for the Angels, you know, you've followed in some big footsteps there as far as venues. Yeah. Oh, well, um, funnily, yeah, we've got a drummer that's been playing with some of those guys. And I'm doing some gigs with Gleeso, who's... Uh, oh, yeah. We do have that coming up in January as well. A few things going on. And then I will be jumping over to do some stuff uh, again with Joe. Oh, and good. And his friends as well. Oh, so. and you're doing the... Monst- that's what I wanted to ask. You're doing the Monsters of Rock Cruise. Is that the first time we'll have done that? It, it is, yes. Yeah, that's so, in March, actually. Yeah, I am doing that one. Yeah. So what... I, I, the darkness I is on it. The darkness is on it. Yeah, I know. How good's that? I mean, surely um, Justin will get you on his podcast. We, we have to see that. Has Justin got his own podcast? Well, he, he has his YouTube channel. If you've, it's called Justin Hawkins Rides Again, and he does okay. these amazing videos, sometimes solo, sometimes interviews people. You've got to make that happen. That'd be great. Well, look, you know, feel free to reach out to him and say... I had a good experience with Bray, you know. Yeah, I'm right. a huge fan of him. I think he, he struck that chord He's with amazing. some of those things that were just had the humour but yeah. could really, you know, he could really speak the speak and, 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 and play He's the play when amazing. he came to actually playing guitar. And the, just, the, just the sound of the records. Yeah. Just, you know, I got it right from the start. I was just like, this is hilarious yeah. you know this is great no, no it's, yeah permission and i know joe satriani feels the same by yeah the good way. well that's there you go that's a compliment too so and ray what here's a one out of left to center what's the biggest misconception out there about you jeez uh oh look i could talk about just the you know that i'm just in a band that's a radio rock band Thirsty, you know. Sometimes when you're coming up, everybody likes to put everybody into a certain pigeonhole, and I think that's not like it was. I think when you get older, you know, I think bands when they're younger, it's a bit more like guys in a footy team or something. You know, there's some band that's down the road, then they kind of they're two degrees this way, but they hate the band that's two degrees that way. And to be honest, now you know we do these builds with guys like Eskimo Joe and end of fashion and you know living end and and then a lot of the older you know crew as well you know people like daryl braithwaite russell morris um you know mossy we've played barnsey and a lot of those legendary guys even farnham you know yeah um 
And uh, I think at the end of the day, you just end up more, yeah, you just end up being part of a big family. And I was having some throat trouble the other day. I was on a gig and we had 12 gigs in uh, 13 days or something. One of them was a solo gig in Sydney, but the rest of them were all in Western Australia. And at, at a gig with uh, Tanya Doko from Bachelor Girl. Oh, yeah. You know? And I was always a huge fan of her, her voice and the songs. And she was there giving me all this vocal advice and, you know, do this and if you're going to take the steroid pill thing, you know, do it at a certain point because, you know, you, it will reduce the inflammation but it'll come back with a vengeance and, you know, just stuff like that. And, and that that's what happens when you get a bit older. It's yeah. so nice. You just get to just be part of a crew and everyone knows how hard it is yeah. taking the gear around and, you know. I was going to ask, how did you get into doing the podcast? And you're a keyboard player yourself, obviously. Yeah, and not not just being self-deprecating. I'm just a weekend warrior hack. Like, grew up in a country town, learned a little bit of organ, can't play piano to save myself, um, and so on. But yeah, look, love it to bits and just got into it through involvement in a musician's forum. Um, I've always loved it and thought, well, what a great opportunity yeah. to interview some great people about their passion. So, that, yeah, that's yeah, pretty that's much awesome. that. And were you into the the more the stories of the people, or were you into the gear as well? Are you one of those sort of uh, yeah. gear people? Or I, I'm a gear nerd, but I realise that yeah. there aren't a lot of podcasts here that talk to people about themselves and their careers, and I, I find that the yeah. more interesting. I'll, I'll talk gear to the cows come home, but I think it's like your story is an example of just that's much more interesting. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, we'll do the gear one over a bottle of wine. And that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we'll <laughs> that's right. That's right. I just can't remember, you know, just that, you know, I don't know what the local music store was or the one that you were going to, but, you know, I just remember how many times I'd go in there and, you know, you'd, it's just, it's the best fun, you know. It is, yeah. yeah. I'll still make the trek up to Taramara Music when I can. Oh, look, honestly, I was in there the other day, literally. I actually, someone from there called me today. They said there's a, a thing called a Yamaha uh, P, well, it's a very popular. Oh, yeah, P225 P1, or whatever P1, the new one is. P225 or something. Um, and there's a seven octave one, and I was all, I was sort of going, well, people always think that you get the 88, but what if you want to put it sideways in the back of a vehicle? <laughs> you get the seven octave, you know, the That's 73 right. or the 76, you know. So yeah, and apparently they're bringing out a new compact version or something. So I'm not sure whether that is to the liking of piano players who want a more um, yeah weighted action. So yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so I, I forgot to mention we had a question from uh, a listener from South America, Walter, um, and good to hear from you, Walter. He was fascinated about uh, how you've made such a great degree of hand independence. What sort of work did you have to do that you do the amazing bass work and the keyboard work in such disparate ways? Just pure practice or there's some particular ways That's you approach that? And look, to be honest, <laughs> it's... When you make the sound different in your left hand because you're playing a different keyboard, and often it's a different action, for instance, if you're playing a, let's say a Rhodes in your right hand, um, it is gonna dictate a specific type of playing because of the way that the input happens. But then there's a Moog little fatty or whatever on the left hand, which is all analog, but it's a totally light synth action. You're gonna, you know, you've got no way of making more than one note at once on a monophonic synth like that. So your technique is going to sort of chase a certain thing. And every keyboard player plays two-handed. If you've got two hands, you're going to learn left hand, right hand. 
So that's the biggest trick, you know, giving away the, you know, the punchline. It's like, well, just get two different sounds and you're going to seem already more like you've got more independence because the sounds are independent of each other and mix separately. But that said, the roles are different. Like if you're getting a Moog and you're having to tune it, you know, not lead kind of register and you're going right down into that bottom thing which is lower than a bass guitar really you know you're going down to the b's and c's that are lower than a maybe where a five string bass is going to go that sort of thing is yeah the independence comes from maybe thinking somewhere along the lines of a hand percussionist maybe there's like a conga sort of thing that guys like chick Corea were really good at you know that and that's you know i think that sort of playing comes out of yeah it's i used to always be doing hand percussion on the kitchen table and it is very much a percussive instrument and i think that that's the first port of call working on those things and obviously within the hands going up and down as a whole limb um a lot of it's actually you're not playing things at the same time you're going you know you know they're, they're really you're not playing congas like that all the time. You no. sort of are some of the time, but a lot of it's filling in the gaps. It's it's like what drummers talk about with what Mike Clark and uh, Harvey Mason did and Zigaboo did, where they only play one surface at the same time. You know, kick is never played when the hi-hat and snare are played. It's always a things are kind of going in at different times, and then even if you're doing a double hit there, there's nothing else going on. You know, it's not like, you know, it's not all just kind of like everything's hitting at the same time. It's more about thinking in that, uh, yeah, that 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 percussion way, I think, and, and, oh, yeah, and yeah. limb first, and then sort of then mobilize the fingers within the hand of each percussion percussion yeah, no great answer no excellent uh walter will love that and um so last three questions ray before we let you go tag a keyboard player is there another keyboard player out there you'd love to hear more about their career i'm sure you know about dennis ham already no dennis i'm going to plead ignorance so educate dennis me greatest guy in the world and he's worked a lot with um lewis as well he, he he tours with um, Thundercat these days, basically. Okay. Um, he did play with Alan Holdsworth before Alan died, um, and I think he's a fantastic guy. And he just plays the crap out of the keyboard. <laughs> and he's right. yeah, you know, he can read real quick. He's he's just an unbelievable round rounded musician on lots of levels. And and yeah, we, I was lucky enough to be at a jam with Lewis one time, and he was playing this motif, you know, one of those Yamaha motifs. And I just remember how, yeah, he just got around it so well and it was, the sounds were so punchy and he just, yeah, he just, he commanded it. It was really, really cool. Um, he's great. And then I guess, who else? Uh, I like Aaron Parks as a as a jazz piano player. I think he's great. Right. Well, yeah. Good picks. I'll be checking yeah. them out. No, brilliant. Uh, Desert Island Discs, Ray, it's time for those five albums. If you have to choose five, what would they be? Uh, I didn't think about this before. This I should have <laughs> read the prep, but I'll, I'm just going to reel them off. I don't know. Uh, I think Machine Head by Deep Purple, 1972. Nice. Classic. Um, maybe I'm going to even say The 16 Men of Tain by Alan Holdsworth. That's a okay. crazy thing. Throw that in there for fun. Look, maybe the debut album by Mr. Bungle, Mr. Oh, Bungle yep. self-titled, is nice. weird and wonderful in its own way. 
Um, it's one of those ones that you always find something new in every time you listen to it. So that's a good Desert Island disc. If you're stuck there, it's going to screw you a lot. And Disco Volante is probably more subversive and hilarious in its own way, but it's a little more lo-fi and it's a, yeah. bit, it's a bit more of a challenging listen. I think I'd have to throw a Keith Jarrett album in there. Nice. And I think, look, Standards Volume 2 is a classic. Um, a lot of people say Live at the Deerhead Inn. I know that's Aaron Sterling's favourite, one of his favourite um, albums by Keith. But I think, yeah, maybe the Cologne concert, of course, Cologne concert, yeah. um, is just legendary on it so is. many levels. You can just hear the inspiration and, and, and how the guy's just trying new stuff every every beat, you know. It's just like, what's going to happen here? And I've got one more, don't I? Yep. Um, I mean, I thought of Mama Said by Lenny Kravitz is because it's, oh, yeah. it's a great... It's a good one. It's just one of those albums where I don't think there's many weak links on it. I think no. it's, it's a cool, cool, soulful um, tribute to the stuff that came before, you know, yeah. the Zeppelins and the, and the, the James Browns and everything else. But that, right. I, you know, I'd revise that list every day. Of the yeah, week, of course. Yeah. Tomorrow, so that's no, me just going back, just straight off the top of my head. Nah, nice work. Oh, you know, I'd pro- uh, yeah, I'd probably put a Janey Mitchell album in there as well. Maybe Hey Jira as well. I right. think that's you get six. Amazing. A lot of people get six. You get them as well. So that's good. Um, and then the last one raised the quick fire 10. So quick, uh, 10 quick, short and sharp answers. Uh, first keyboard you ever owned. I th- you've sort of answered that. Oh, I'm going to say the Korg X5D. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Oh, well, or it could be a Fender Rhodes. My dad oh. kind of bought it for me, but then I paid oh, wow. him back through my busking fund. Yeah, not many people get to say that. That's great. Yeah, I've still got it. Wow, that's amazing. Um, most important pre-gig ritual? We don't do them in Thirsty Merc. People usually just have a shot of whiskey or something. But with uh, with Joe Satriani, he does a thing called Ceremony, which I call Ceremony. Um, and it's basically just everyone going in and just going like, and he says some saying. And it's like, you normally it's some inspirational thing, like, have a great gig, let's go to work tonight. But with Joe, they're the weirdest things. Like they're just, they're just some like I'll have the fish soup, you know, like just totally off the wall, and they don't mean anything a lot of the time. Well, sometimes they kind of do, but that's, that's that was really funny watching him come up with one of those every night. That's brilliant. Uh, yeah. Favorite Aussie band, if you had to select one. Oh, I like the Cosmic Psychos. Yeah. I think they're, I think they're. Hilarious. It's still going strong. I love the I know. video clips. Love I know. Clips, I saw the yeah. singer at the Brisbane uh, Lounge the other day. The Virgin Lounge. Yeah. Love it. Um, transpose button or adjust on the fly? Oh, I never use the transpose. Yeah, that's what I assumed. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, I used to as a joke at home to freak myself out. I was like, whoa, that's not F. You well, know. Do, you, do you have perfect pitch? Uh, I've got what I call imperfect pitch. Yeah, okay. Well, the thing is, it's usually quite perfect, but then if I play a gig on guitar in E flat, oh, it'll throw me out. Yeah. Now the next stuff I'll hear for the next couple of days, I'll be like, "Whoa, what's that?" Because you're playing E shapes and G that's shapes. Right. Whoa. That's that's great. Favorite gig you've ever done, if that's possible. Uh, I don't know. I, I played a gig the other day at the Charles Hotel in Perth. And yep. it was the last gig I've played, actually, at the time of doing this. And I've got to say, that was a real 
you know, I was struggling with the vocals and I'd had a cold and I'd come back jet lag and probably picked up something on the plane from the Satch tour and then I, you know, my mum's been not so well so I had to take her up to the thing and it was cold in Sydney and I, I was just like sick. And then I had to do these gigs yeah. on it. And then at the end of it, I was just like, I'm finishing strong. We're going to like have a good time. Lots of people turned out for it. And I remember looking around at the guys on stage and it was just like everyone had a blast of a gig. It was just one of those Mick Skelton on drums, Phil Stack just rocking. It was great. Yeah, that was the Merc doing its thing. That was really cool. No, good answer. And favourite city you've ever played anywhere in the world? Great question. I, I, I can only say this now that I've been to a lot more with Joe, but, you know, there's some places in Italy which are pretty amazing. You know, obviously it's you've got Florence and you've got Lecce and you've got Napoli and you've got... They're all amazing. And then, yeah, there's... Vienna's an incredibly impressive city and really lovely people and that was really cool to play there on the last run and I think Tokyo's one of the most impressive yeah, okay. on the planet actually as well. Yeah. No, so many jazz clubs and you know the electronic stores and yeah. No, good picks. Yeah. Uh, name an artist you've not worked with that you've got on your bucket list you'd love to work with. Justin Hawkins. I mean, you know, let's see what happens on the Monsters for Rock. <laughs> there's still time there's always time yeah um favorite music documentary or movie we're we're actually testing some new questions on you here ray so is there a particular whether it's a real a a fiction or a non-fiction music doco you love music doco well the last one i watched i thought was really good and it was about little richard oh yeah just out now and um yeah uh that was fantastic because, you know, you, you, you know, all the stuff that was going on culturally was just such a heavy thing that was going on, that weird mix of mm-hmm. everything going on from, you know, the sexual orientation to the racial stuff to the times that he was coming up to the fact that he was coming up with things that it is very clear that he was part of a crew of people that were doing stuff that, you know, he never got the credit that was due and it Absolutely. was an ex- extremely confusing time but then when you go and listen to guys who are his biggest fans and I'm talking people like Paul McCartney and Mick Jagger you go back to the original TV performances and live stuff that he was doing when he was young yeah. and you're like no one had that no. in the vocal no absolutely. you know he was up there with groove like Ray Charles you know Prince Michael Jackson probably better to be honest he was yeah. like punching the groove of that thing you know the chuck berry thing of like playing a swung drum beat with a straight guitar that's what he was doing on that piano and and then the vocals were just reflecting where that was going and he just was at that perfect cross section and just changed yeah. the game you know no. so that was that was the real pleasure of watching that movie is just seeing how incredibly natural that that groove came to him yeah superb pick uh, yeah. Name one thing you'd like to see invented that would make your life as a keyboard player easier. Oh, a, a stand for keyboards that isn't something that every keyboard player hates. Yeah, that's a good the worst. I've left stands like under beds at friends' houses. I've just left them at gigs because I'm like, I hate that thing. I'm not even taking it. Yeah. And then you've had the stand where you're putting it in the car and the thing just wrecks other gear you've got. 
and you're just like ah like, like keyboard stands man we gotta get a we gotta get a way to like not make them as awkward as they are yeah. like keyboards I, I, are like come on it's the keyboard you're gonna play the keyboard that's right. If I had a radio, I'd like to try the Gibraltar stuff, but to me it just seems too painful to set up and pull down. Okay, now is that more of that, like... It's that stainless steel, like the drum the drum rack stuff that Gibraltar do for drummers. Yeah, yeah. it must be really solid. Solid as, yeah. Yeah, um, it stands, man. What are yeah. we going to do? You know? <laughs> I agree. Um, it's just the bane of keyboard players' existences, aren't yeah. they? And that's the other thing. It's like, you know, you've already got probably like a couple of pedals or a guitar to bring or whatever and you've got your amp if you're doing that and you might have an in-ears rack and all that and you've got your keyboard and you like that and then you're just like oh i got to get a stand oh. right. it's that extra thing you got to bring and you're just like how do you carry it it's yeah. like what yeah. I don't fit on your back in like a no. bag it's like they're just they stuck on all levels yeah, they do. there's no. better ones and worse ones but come on as a as a concept, let's get rid of them. That's right. Um, <laughs> your your favourite non musical activity hobby or hobby? What keeps you sane outside of music, Ray? Um, so, during COVID, it was like riding bikes and oh, yeah. ice skating because I was like, oh wow, stuck in Sydney and there was a rink. Um, but yeah. What would be... I, I like photography, actually, and okay. doing some, some of that stuff, yeah, because it's a good cross-section between some visual stuff but also a bit of kit, you know, so you get to mess around with that's great. little add-ons and things, and that's quite fun. No, excellent. Look, can't thank you enough, and you've been more than generous with your time. We've kept you past what we should have, so um, no yeah, looking forward to catching up face-to-face -face at some stage. Yeah, but, um, yeah, can't wait to um, see what you've got coming in the next 12 months and 20 years and 40 years, mate. Hopefully, I hope I'm still here to be telling the story. And you too. Thanks again for the time. And there we have it. As I said at the start of the show, you can tell I was having a, a good time. Ray's just such a brilliant guy to talk to, so knowledgeable on a range of areas. And yeah, we had a blast. So, Ray, cannot thank you enough for taking the time. Um, I'm certainly going to catch Thirsty Merc on their tour later in the year, and I'm looking forward to hopefully catching up with Ray face-to-face -face as well. Um, so, yeah, I hope you enjoyed that a great deal. Um, as always, we love to hear from you. Um, so we're on, you can contact us via a range of methods. Uh, we're on email at editor at keyboardchronicles.com. We're on Facebook at The Keyboard Chronicles. The same goes for Instagram, the very new meta threads for those that have made the transition from Twitter. We are at The Keyboard Chronicles on there as well. Uh, we are still on Twitter at The C Keyboard CHR1, and we're even on TikTok. We do it all um, at the show, so please do reach out to us via any of those means. We do love hearing from you. Um, I also need to give a huge shout-out to our Gold and Silver supporters uh, in no particular order. First um, is Tammy Catcher from Tammy's Musical Stew. We could not do this without Tammy's support. Thank you, Tammy, as always. Um, Radio Grande, a great funk reimagining channel on YouTube. Um, they take some brilliant songs and give them a whole new flavour, and they've been going from strength to strength the last couple of months. I can't say where the cause, but um, it's great to see them growing the brilliant brother Paul Brown from The Water Boys, still going strong, still touring, um, posting some great stuff on social media if you follow brother Paul. Um, thank you, brother Paul, for your ongoing support. 
the brilliant musicplayer.com forums. Um, Dave and the team there and Joe, who you met um, with our episode with Bill Payne, um, free, heavy frequenters of those forums, great place to hang, cannot recommend it highly enough. And last but definitely not least, Midnight Mastering. If you're looking to actually have your own creations mixed or mastered, I personally recommend and heavily endorse Mike at midnightmastering.com. Do check them out. Extremely reasonably priced too. So again, thank you for your time. We really do appreciate it. And uh, we'll be back again in a couple of weeks with a new episode.